0: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts.
2: Hi there, podcast fans. I'm Tom Gibbs. Welcome to Telegraph Audio Football Club. Today, we're gonna give you something a little bit different and something we very much hope you enjoy. It is the first ever AFC Telegraph best stroke worst game, or as it's otherwise known, from glad to worst. We haven't thought of a name yet. We've got a huge list of footballing categories, everything from program notes to goals incorrectly ruled out for offside. And we've asked our panel a simple question. What is the best or worst example from that category the first four we've got up for discussion today are tournaments goals from outside the area commentary moments and transfer windows for an individual club let's take you now into a series of remote audio recording facilities this is the brave new world how are you feeling about it matt law
1: <laughs> and i'm not feeling great about it if i'm honest with you but um, I'm intrigued to see how uh, how we work this one out and how we all yeah. don't talk over each other. <laughs> we'll learn as we go. Nina, how are you?
0: You know what? I thought I'd be a lot more panicked and going crazy by now, but I'm kind of enjoying it. I kind of like really? this feeling of thinking. You know, there's nothing for me to do. I can just rest all day. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm not. I'm not going to lie. I didn't realize how much I like being lazy.
2: Good. Glad to hear it. How How are you getting through the days, JJ Ball?
3: I mean, I know this is kind of a an internet meme, but it's genuinely not that much different to my real life. <laughs> 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 I mostly stay inside. The only thing I don't get to do is go to the pub. But then I have beer in my fridge, so it's great. It's not bad. Great. Glad to hear it. Well yeah, we had a holiday positive. last week. That was that was mostly useless, but
2: good. Wow. Did you look yeah. at like, pictures of locations you'd like to visit on Google <laughs> image search?
3: No, I played lots of Football Manager 19.
2: <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> a great you. use of your time. Yes. Right. <clears throat> Here is our first topic for this exciting new format. And it's a big one. And it's Mina Rizuki who has proposed it. And it is football tournaments. And Mina, you've chosen your best ever football tournament. What have you chosen and why?
0: You see, I was really confident of my choice until this email went around, and then Matt made me feel silly about it. Um, <laughs> that
1: wasn't the point. I just, you, I thought you must be way older than you look.
0: Oh, well, not. I do invest in a lot of creams. Um, <laughs> <in> general... <laughs> um, but um, I thought the 1986 World Cup was the best of a World Cup. And I Can I just really ask
1: how old you were? Toys. How old were you? I was three. Three? Three? Mm. (laughs) So how can that be the best ever tournament?
0: Because I didn't watch it until much later. And then I watched it religiously on VHS at the time. Um, because yeah. I grew up with a lot of, like, older people, so I'm very much the baby in the family. Like, I'm nine years younger than my middle sister. It must be and... a big VHS. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, you know, Karate Kid and the 1986 World Cup. That was basically all we ever watched in my household.
1: Did you watch it as live? Did you, like, not know what happened and watched it sort of, uh, were you um, watching the games chronologically? Or were you just watching the best games?
0: No, it was, it started off by watching like uh, Brazil versus France and then like Italy's games and then it got into like, you know, Denmark was amazing. Um, But it it started being something that I didn't really enjoy until about 10 years later. So like maybe like sort of, I started watching it after Euro 96 properly. And I was like, it just... There wasn't a World Cup like it because it was like a Galactica World Cup. It was a World Cup where every team had this amazing superstar. So I don't know. I guess I I loved it because of that, and I thought that the you know the, the level was so high. You had Michel Platini, you had Michael Laudrup, you had Gary Lineker, you had Maradona. It was just an amazing bunch of goals being scored from people you would never imagine at the time. Jose for for, um, I I assume you would not pronounce it like that, Josema, for Brazil. Um, I don't know. It was just a really good level as a tournament. I thought it had everything in it and most importantly was star quality.
2: You see, I think there is something to these tournaments that we're not quite old enough to take in at the time. I think they loom very large in our minds. I've I've got a special place in my heart for Italian 90 and I was only six when that was going on. I don't really remember it um it's all a bit brighter isn't it when you're young and these these tournaments come through at kind of formative ages
1: yeah definitely There's, i think there's a peak age i think around anywhere between 9 and 13 i reckon Mm. is a great age for a tournament to come round, and that the likelihood is is that even if that tournament is rubbish you will always look back on it from that time fondly because that's probably And I'm guessing a bit here, but it's true in my case. I reckon that's probably the time where you're most likely to invest fully in it. You're going to buy the stickers. You're going to get the computer game. You're going to watch every single game. You're going to know every single player. You're going to remember every single goal. You're going to go outside and try and recreate every single goal. So I definitely think there's a peak time in people's lives where they'll always, whatever tournament it is, you'll look back and think, that's got to be the greatest, just because of the age you were.
2: Well, we'll get into your pick in a minute, Matt, and then everyone will be able to work out your age based on what you've just said. But <laughs> I suppose the thing is with Maradona—if you've seen that film, which we probably all watched in the last couple of weeks because it was uh, on Channel Four—but um, <laughs> he, he just, uh, he just was on another level, wasn't he? I, I think, I, you know, I think you certainly make a very good argument that Messi is a better player, but he's the iconography around Maradona, the what he meant to people. Uh, there's just something so compelling about him.
0: Do you know what's so interesting about him is that he's such a flawed human being in many ways that that's why you sort of love him a little bit more? Absolutely. It, it, it's just it's that thing that attracts you to everything. And when I remember him, obviously my first memory of him is actually the 1990 World Cup. Um, 94 is the one that I remember the most. And when I think of great World Cups, I think of stuff that's outside of football. Like I think of the Cornetto song in 1990. <laughs> like Pavarotti. like, or I'll think of um, do you guys remember Bebeto and Romario's um, like swinging baby celebration of course like, yeah. it, and that child is now 27 years old which makes me feel like dying slowly but it's the stuff that's like outside like 1986 had the Mexican wave you know that was like the first time like the Mexican wave was done at such a grand scale you know in football and you sort of remember the stuff that's outside, the, the the energy around it. Like, you know, like when I think of Euro 96, I think of like being in Sainsbury's with like 15 goal, like 15 footballs and, and all around me. And I'm like, please, can I buy all of these? You know, just because I wanted to have like a, yeah, a playpen of just footballs, you
2: know? <laughs> Great days. Uh, what have you nominated, Matt, as your favourite ever tournament?
1: Well, I've sort of given it away a little bit. Yeah, Italia 90, which I think for people of a certain age around their 40s will be a very popular choice, even if, I totally accept, um, when you watch back, the, the standard of football wasn't incredible, and obviously the final was one of the worst finals ever. Thank you. Uh, um, but it's just, I mean, I, I was kind of reminding myself of it a little bit when we, uh, when we went through these subjects, shock how I've done some homework. <laughs> I, for, for instance, England, Scotland and the Republic of Ireland were all there And they all had, I mean, you know, i obviously huge Villa fan. So, in the England team, we've we've got kind of David Platt, who didn't start in the team, but obviously became a massive part of it. In the Scotland team, we've got Alan McAnally, who was a great Villa hero of mine. In the Republic of Ireland team, it was basically the Villa team. So, it's like Staunton, McGrath, Houghton, Andy Townsend. So, they're straight away, to have those three countries in with with big players from, from our sort of National League, I think was a huge thing uh, for the interest, and ho ho, Scotland lost to Costa Rica, which again was was pretty good about the whole thing. But yeah, I mean, so I, don't I remember just it. it's fine. <laughs> what I like from back then, though, what I do like, which I think is lost now, is the World Cup and the Euros were basically the only time you saw foreign yeah. players. Yeah. you didn't see foreign players. You didn't have YouTube. You there might have been a bit of it around on the telly, but. Not a lot, and you weren't watching it like people watch it now. You didn't have, um, in 90, you didn't have stuff like FIFA and things. So, you know, you've seen players like Carlos Valderrama, Lota Mateus, Skilacci, Baggio, uh, I think Romario with Brazil. Um, like, you, you might have heard a bit about these players, but you've never actually seen them play. So you see them and you're just like, wow, wow. Like from the hairstyles, from the just style of play, from what they're doing and they just come across to you as superhuman because you're not ever exposed to them and it's so exciting from that point of view and then take that on another level and a nation like cameroon comes along i'd have been i'd have been about uh 11 in 1990 i'm not even convinced i knew that cameroon was a country to be quite honest with you <laughs> let alone a national football team and then just to see them i mean Roger Miller didn't actually start in the tournament, but obviously you've got the Roger Miller dance, but they beat Argentina in the first game, uh, the world champions. And you're just like, my God, who are these people? It's, it's incredible. And why do they and...
2: keep kicking everyone so hard?
1: That was brilliant, though. I mean, that was just fantastic. That was another fantastic part of it. But all of a sudden, like people like Oman Biek become little kind of legends of the tournament, and you, you end up following their careers slightly. And... All of that nostalgia and all, all of that, I think, makes them special. And I think now the tournaments are special in different ways because the level of football is often better and and stuff. But I think the fact you didn't know these people at all going into these tournaments, they were just massive surprises to you, I do think adds a massive layer uh, of making it different.
2: JJ you've gone a little bit more modern with your choice bring us up to date with a classic uh, recent tournament
3: World Cup 2018 for me
0: Now was bit, it it's a good one
3: Yeah and it's for various reasons like I think the it just looked it looked great it wasn't this disastrous um Russian mess that it was made out it was going to be I think uh, it was quite enjoyable living in London and having England do well which you might not expect a Scottish person to say, but it was really fun being able yeah, to you, go to the bars. Do you and you England
2: doing it. well, JJ, or does
3: it annoy you? I don't really care. My, my, my parents are English. My family's English. I don't really care. Uh, I find it... I actually find myself kind of wanting them to do well because you get, you get worked up with it. And this is before even I worked in media. You get... Because it's all uh, everywhere. You get quite invested in all the players and everything about them. I watch them all the time. You watch it. But then every single tournament they do quite well and then the next game everyone starts to think that they're going to win it and then it's really funny when they lose. (laughs) (laughs) And it happens every time and it becomes more enjoyable each time because you know it's going to happen. Like I knew they were going to lose in that semi-final. It was great. Uh, but that, that World Cup was fun And I, I, there's something about it the, the, the times of the games were good They were on a decent time yeah. I don't know Everyone was at work But it was great For me especially working it. I wasn't at the tournament Like some of the, the luckier ones But getting to do the live blogs Where you're uh, watching the games During the afternoon at night I mean the first game was a 5-0 And I remember particularly well Is going to um, a bar in Victoria After work With fellow journalists And uh, Ronaldo scored that free kick Against Spain that just brought the house down. It was a, a brilliant, brilliant game. Yeah,
2: that three uh,
3: 0 was. Incredible. Yeah, and it's when because normally Ronaldo steps up, he uh, boots his free kick into the wall. Right, that's what you expect to happen every single time. But because it's a World Cup, of course he puts it in the top corner, and that's the uh, it's these big players. I love when they step up to these games.
0: You come yeah. for Croatia.
3: Yeah, and I remember the final is uh, actually not the final, the semi-final when. Um, I thought a good example of the difference in teams were like Henderson for England versus Modric at Croatia. And you could see how, I think Henderson's a great player, but you could see the difference in technical quality between him and someone like Modric. And it's sort of the difference between the traditional English player. I mean, Henderson full of heart and determination and effort and work and come on lads. Whereas Modric just turns up and the ball's glued to his foot and can do whatever he wants with it. And that was the difference in in the World Cup games. It's not about how hard you run, it's about how good you are.
2: Yeah, the big difference is Modric was cheating by using glue. <laughs>
0: but it wasn't just—it wasn't really just his technical ability, as much as his awareness of where to position himself at all times. It just made life really difficult on England because it was like wherever he was, he was just occupying exactly the right space. And it was how do you overcome that? It was like he was just this one man brain of of intelligence and technical ability, and it's like him plus other people around him, and that was Croatia, you know.
3: Yeah, I mean, I I sort of include that in the technical part of it. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It's just a natural understanding of the game. I mean, it's not that the module doesn't work hard. This is one of the fallacies you get of supremely talented players. They all work very hard to be where they are and to have been that good. But uh, yeah, it was part of what made it enjoyable. I mean, I watched that England-Croatia in a really busy bar outside. I remember everyone getting really involved. People who never watch football getting to watch it. That's fun (laughs) as well. You get to talk about the games with people who'd never normally care. And it just feels like there's something that brings... It sounds very cheesy. It brings people together to watch as one, but especially that Especially the enjoyable. penalty
0: shootout. Especially the penalty shootout. And was the England best won thing. a penalty shootout. Yeah, yeah. Was I was the, the best only best one thing. in the
3: bar cheering them on. That
0: was great. It was so cool. It was like those like great moments. Although Italy didn't qualify, so I didn't love it that much. But yeah, go on. Go
1: on. That, <laughs> that's the only. Um, that's the only time I've known in an England press box. The basically the whole of the England press to cheer in that penalty shootout against yeah. Colombia. <laughs> You, you get it a lot with with foreign journalists, they that far more partisan than English English journalists, and they often will cheer their nation's goals, and we all sort of laugh and think they're all very unprofessional, um, <laughs> while we sit there sort of po-faced, just ready to <laughs> criticise. But then you couldn't help but get carried, you couldn't help but get carried away with that Columbia penalty shootout. I remember watching that and just feeling. Even when um, when Henderson didn't score, I was so confident we were going to win that penalty shootout yeah. on based on nothing other than the fact that the tournament just had that feel about it for us. It just—I just, I remember just sitting there, absolutely convinced we were going to win it. And I, I also then remember going down to the the mix zone, the place where you went interview the players after that penalty shootout. And obviously, the relationship between players and press can be fairly prickly, even at the best of times, and like. Players were like coming up and just hugging journalists and sort of, almost like <laughs> high fiving, and you were getting sort of lost in it a little bit. And then looking back, thinking, mm, not sure about that. But everyone was just caught up completely in it. It was it was crazy.
2: Right, I've got a quick nomination of my own for this, uh, and I've gone negative with the worst tournament ever, which. Um was South Africa 2010, and we've spoken a bit about age and how important that is. I was 26 for that tournament, so right in the zone of, I was working on it, well I didn't go to it, but I was covering it from London, Uh, I was at an age where it was fine to go out quite a lot and have a nice time, and we kept going to pubs after work that tournament expecting, oh brilliant, we're going to have a great match to watch. Never once was it a great match. So few goals, horrible football, so few memorable moments, and Vuvuzela's awful. Mm. Let's move on and talk about another category nominated by Matt Law, which is outside the area, goals. What is your nomination for this and why, Matt?
1: Mine is uh, Zlatan. Versus England in 2012, when he overhead kicked it from about 35 yards out, thirty thirty-five yards out. Um, I mean, I was there, and it was just—it's the. I don't know whether it's the best goal I've seen live, but it's the one that sort of made me kind of lose it for a bit the most. Uh, <laughs> uh, I was just—it was. I don't know whether you've had this. I mean, I've have I've had this several times, but it's literally a case of. I was kind of sitting there I remember I was sitting there watching it and because it was very late in the game and stoppage time due to print deadline I can't remember which paper I'd have been working for then probably the Daily Express um due to print deadlines um you often have to file whatever you're doing before the final whistle um and then you, you sort of have to update it afterwards if there's anything anything uh, significant obviously this was fairly significant but it did mean that I'd probably filed about 10 minutes earlier. So I was literally just sat there watching the end of the game rather than having to have my head in my laptop or or work. And I remember just kind of watching Joe Hart race out of his goal and head it, and everything went into slow motion. And you just were like, oh, my God, he's actually going to overhead kick it. And it was one of them where I think the guy, whoever was next to me was still having to file. He obviously didn't have as early early print deadlines as me. And he had his head buried in his computer. And I was literally nudging him, stroke, just whacking him with my elbow. Just literally like, oh my God, look, 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 as it's kind of happening in slow motion. And it was like, he's not going to, he's not going to, he's going to, oh my God. And then I think as well, it was also the fact that watching it in Sweden, in the open, it was the opening of their stadium, I think it's called the Friends Stadium. Rubbish name for a stadium. <laughs> um,
2: Save that for a forthcoming uh, episode about worst yeah, stadium
1: worst names. Worst stadium names. There's definitely one worse than that. We might not be able Note to the down, and, show. Um, and it was the fact that it was the opening of the stadium, so it's like this party carnival atmosphere. Anyway, Sweden were winning already at the time three two because Zlatan had already scored a hat trick at this point, point. and then this went in, and the, the roof just went off the place, and it's like. It was the first game ever in the stadium. He'd just scored the best goal that was ever going to be scored in the stadium. It was his fourth goal of the game. It was like, it was crazy. The whole thing was just crazy. And it was brilliant to be at. And it's like witnessing sort of genius at work. I think probably if I'd watched it at home, I'd be saying, oh, that was a good goal, but it's not the best ever goal from outside the area. But uh, it was a, the fact that I was there made it, really. And looking back on it, I like this. Just looking back at the England team that day, it was uh, quite an England team. Um, there were a load of debuts. Raheem Sterling made his debut, aged 17. Not quite so great debuts. were Stephen Colker, who actually scored for England in that game, Leon Osman, Ryan Shawcross, <laughs> oh, <Lee>. Carl <laughs> Jenkinson, and then wow. Wilf Zahar. His one and only England opponent wow. before he decided he wanted wow. to play for Ivory uh, Coast. A, so it's a whole bizarre a thing. Yeah.
3: I like that. This is how I played that one game. And then maybe him scored an overhead kick, it's like, no, I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, Hart didn't quite get that
2: right. Oh, look at that. That is absolutely astonishing. You won't see a better golden that this season. He's got all four. And
3: Sweden have rather embarrassed England in the second half here.
2: What have you got, JJ, for this category, outside the area goals?
3: Uh, the first thing I think of, and I think it's related to watching, uh, well, back to talking about VHS's football hell over and over again, was <laughs> uh, Alan Shearer's free kick against Leicester. It's very, very niche. Uh, in a 4-3 comeback win in 1997. And uh, the reason for it is I don't think a human man has ever hit a football as hard <laughs> as Shearer does <laughs> in this. It's pure power. So, like... Uh, Newcastle go one nil up. They go three one down, and then just as you know, it's it's three one. They've thrown it away. Shearer's thinking, "Why have I moved to this club? I've just wasted my career." <laughs> the the ball sat just on the edge of the area, and he like launches it almost straight through the goalkeeper. I don't know how he's hit it so hard. Like, I don't know. One of the things I notice whenever you play with uh, football, kick a football around with someone who's like a pro or a semi-pro or something, is how hard they can kick the ball. Yeah, and I think uh, we've spoken about this before. Yeah, on here. I think yeah. you said it, yeah. It's and, uh, frightening. This is one of the examples, I don't know possibly how he can do this. And it reminds me of like, the volley he scored against Everton uh, was another, I mean, that was amazing. But I, I like a, a goal when it's struck with anger, like Rooney's against Newcastle for Man United remember when he just launched one yeah, from 30 really yards yeah those are the things, kind of things I like where it's just pure power but to get that pure power you have to have absolutely perfect technique and uh, why does that.
2: anyone do that anymore you don't really see free kicks like that anymore where they're just leathered in from 30 yards
3: I think the ball lifts too high I wonder if it, that's what it is because it's they are maybe a bit lighter now I'm not sure yeah Maybe maybe people, people aren't so angry anymore. They're happier now. We've got more money. <laughs> <laughs>
0: paid so well.
3: My nomination for
2: this is the aforementioned Hammers Rodriguez uh, in the World Cup 2014 for Colombia against Uruguay, where he chests it down, turns and volleys it in from distance. Uh, another one hit with fury. But I've got a bit of a confession to make about this, and I think this is one of the great unspoken truths about watching football. Currently, I missed it. I was looking at my phone. And my friend <laughs> celebrated it. Uh, and I sort of then celebrated it almost before I'd seen it and then saw the replays. But watching football with a phone in your hand is an awful thing to do. The number of times I've missed really important things, it's so easily done. I try now to put my phone elsewhere because it just ruins everything.
0: Yeah. No, nice.
1: You're right. You're right. People who like tweet through football matches, I don't get how you can possibly be watching the match. It's no way to live. What have you got for this, Mina?
0: Um, My one is similar to Matt's choice, which is a Zlatan bicycle kick. And you guys remember this? It was 1999-2000 season. It was Fiorentina against uh, Barcelona. And it was Mauro Bressan for Fiorentina. Now, this kid was... I mean, he's not a kid, right? But like, as in, he was a, a regular midfielder, kind of mediocre. No, no one really special. Played for a few seasons here and there, Genoa, Milan, for a little, I think, for a few years, maybe two, um, Fiorentina. But never a starter, never an icon, never a guy whose name you remember. And then this was it. It was the Champions League, and it was against Barcelona. And the ball flies out. It's twenty-five yards out, and. The goalkeeper was on his line so it wasn't a goalkeeping error it wasn't joe hart doing some weird thing um and he just decides to launch himself into a bicycle kick hits the underside of the goal uh, of the crossbar on its way um past a horrified franciscano and it was <laughs> like 14 minutes in and it was just astonishing because you I know there's got to be a certain level of, you know, when Shira takes a free kick or when Zlatan does a bicycle kick, they're confident of their ability on the ball. They know that they can do something special and no one's going to shout at them if they miss. But with this kid, you're like, what are you doing? Like, don't even try it. Like, just pass the ball at this point, you know. But to have the audacity to be this average guy to actually go for a bicycle kick in the Champions League and manage it so superbly was fantastic. I like I how the goalkeeper go.
3: It's huh? on it's on the internet.
2: You I can haven't get seen it. the score. Yeah, I have seen, I've seen it now, thanks <laughs> JJ. But uh, I hadn't seen it before. It's better than Zlatan's.
0: Yeah, it was. Um, Telegraph at the time had put it as one of the best goals ever.
2: All right. Well, I haven't read everything the Telegraph has ever published. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Go beyond the headlines with The Telegraph's daily coronavirus podcast. A roundup of the latest news on the pandemic from our leading journalists with analysis on the impact on health, business and travel every weekday evening. Search coronavirus the latest on your podcast app.
2: Right, JJ, what have you nominated as your category and what have you picked for it?
3: Oh, oh yes, I know. Uh, the best bit of commentary. Ever, the best commentary time. moment
2: ever Yes, that's right Go on, that's, Talk, that's, talk that's us right. through your pick. set the scene for us
3: uh, Well, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you what it is first Actually, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I think, I think uh, without doubt, the best commentary And the thing I always think of when I imagine these bits Is Martin Tyler's Aguero uh, For Aguero's Premier League winning goal It's one of the best football moments, I think, ever and it was it was pure Hollywood. I mean, that's that's exactly how you'd write a movie. It was that the big title rival, the evil Man United, had just finished <laughs> their game. They were winning the league, and all of a sudden, uh, this incredible comeback from Manchester City. You just you think it's a mental block. It's not talent. It's something mental that they haven't been able to break. And then it uh, as it comes on, it's the way he he sort of teases it. It's as though Tyler already knows what's happening. And uh, I think that the way he phrases stuff is really important, he uses a lot of um, it's very rhythmic his voice but uh, crucial is the melody in his voice I did a thing, I've put <laughs> I've put this commentary through an auto-tuner to find out <laughs> how, <laughs> how it's done and uh, if you want the, the musical uh, bits of it so when he starts talking he, he talks roughly in A sharp right? <laughs> and he goes A oh sharp, that God. Rooney goal was enough for three points yeah, this is really true and then he alters the rhythm to pick it up it. Uh, no, we're going with A sharp, <laughs> and then he goes um, up from A sharp. I, I deal with sharps better. And he goes up to Manchester. You're still alive here. Goes up to B, and then he's as a semi-breve as a C as he goes Balotelli, and then Aguero gets on the ball, and it goes from C to G, which sounds like this: Aguero. There we go. That's how he does Aguero. <laughs> And the, then the things that he understands, that like the drama of it, like he he knows what's happening, and then he waits and he leaves, in this massive crowd roar to everyone going, Rah! and then out of that he smashes in with, I swear you'll never see anything like this ever again. It's great, um, perfectly. It's great, just, yeah.
0: I don't know. I, I just think I, it I must be still rated. Mina,
1: you are. You off don't your head. rate it. It. Must,
2: it must be so hard to come up with something that perfectly sums up a moment like this, with the pressure no. of a huge audience and knowing it's going to be repeated forever. I, I think this is almost unsurpassable as a commentary moment. Really? Yeah. Okay, like it's, it's obviously
0: a very good commentary moment, but it, it's also a great moment in history. Like, So what is it that you remember? The fact that, oh my God, I cannot believe Manchester did, City did this at the very final moment and Aguero got the goal. Or is it him saying, Aguero? Which which is it?
1: It's I think it. that so, most people watching the telly will will genuinely remember the commentary as much as the goal. It's, it's, yeah. it's become part of it. Try, if it's you, an you, iconic if, piece of commentary. If you to watch, you must be able to find a clip of that goal with a different commentary from, you know, some highlights on a different channel.
3: Yeah, and imagine they like can it.
1: It must have a completely different feel to it. And it would it would feel so weird now to watch it without Tyler screaming Aguero. Yeah, like, uh, be... like the uh,
2: 1966 World Cup uh, coverage.
1: <laughs> yeah. Aguero,
3: that's a good goal and Man City have won the league. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite the same, really. You'd have Motson or something, he would have been like, Oh, Aguero!
1: Oh! at Sunderland. Manchester United have done all they can. That Rooney goal was enough for the three points. Manchester City are still alive here.
2: Balotelli. Aguero! He preempted my answer here because I again have gone negative and for the worst bit of, uh, of commentary of and I, I remember Portsmouth winning the FA Cup in 2008 and John Watson says and we'll put the clip in here uh, but his commentary for Portsmouth winning the FA Cup the goal that won it for them was <laughs> oh and Canu's there is it given and Canu and Portsmouth think they've taken the lead and then there's a gap and Mark Lawrence says well they have haven't they
0: oh my god <laughs> <laughs> oh I-
2: Is it given? And Cardiff and Portsmouth think they've taken the lead. Well, they have, haven't they? I mean, it's a, it's a- in fairness, it's a weird celebration from Kanu, which kind of runs back and forth on the spot which made it look really weird and like it might not have been given. But I think it's a lesson there in why if you're a commentator you always got to remember that you have to assume in the moment it's a goal and then correct yourself if you have to afterwards. And 2008 it was already a stage where John Watson was mainly just making noises uh, instead of actually adding much to games. What have you got, Mina? I, and I know for a fact that what you've nominated here was something that I also considered...
0: Really? The okay, yeah. it was um okay, so weirdly enough, the thing that I nominated actually is the same game, but my favorite piece of commentary is the second goal. But what everyone loves is the first goal. So what the cannavaro. Your... <laughs> yeah, and that oh my god, I love that so much. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was the World Cup two thousand and six. It was the game between Italy and Germany. I think this is a particularly important game because it was obviously like the scandal in 2006 in Italian football, Italians felt like everyone was judging them at the time. This was Germany, the ultimate test. And, um, it was over the first goal from Fabio Grosso is the commentary. It was also because it's so exaggerated. Now, here's the thing with why I have an issue with Tyler and stuff. And I think it's because as you summed it up, you know, in England, it's, and even Matt was saying it before, everyone is so professional. Everyone is so like, you know, oh, it's a wonderful goal. No no one is allowed to show their allegiance to the team they support. So when there is a bit of emotion, everyone gets really happy because it's like, oh my God, you know, like you sort of broke rank, you, you broke your professionalism, you showed your excitement, and it's so fantastic to watch. But around the continent, it happens regularly, so... I think with this what was so great it was like Pelo had the ball obviously then passes it on and Grosso scores the most magnificent goal from you know a, a player that is so mediocre that you would never imagine he could manage it and it was like Pielo Pirlo i am got a Pirlo and it's like Pirlo just had the ball right like he, he wasn't doing anything magnificent at the time but it was just the how carried away he gets, and then grosso, grosso, incredibile, grosso, because it was like of everyone that you could imagine could get the goal. It was grosso, and it was just against Germany in this huge match, and it was the sheer delight of it all. It was amazing. The decimo minuto del supplementare. Va dentro grosso. Ma Caracciolo sta
1: marcando. anche. È uscito Close che era il marcatore
0: di Cannavaro. Palla tagliata. What
1: have you got Matt? Yeah, not my strongest topic. This I struggled <laughs> slightly with this. Not because I don't like commentaries. I just I don't didn't have one that stuck. I, I would have definitely picked JJ's if I. Hadn't already been sent over to me as JJ's got Aguero. Um, <laughs> so I was struggling around a little bit. But what I do think is if I was a commentator, I would constantly, and I'd be a rubbish commentator because of this, I'd be awful. But I'd be constantly looking to predict what was going to happen. So I'd be constantly trying to like say something that looked genius in 10 seconds' time. <laughs> Clive Tilsley has done this. Uh, In the 1990 Champions League final, when Man United were were losing with about a minute to go, and they go up for the corner, and Schmeichel goes up, and everyone's forward. He was, can Manchester United score? They always score. And then literally two seconds later, they scored. So Tilsley's a genius for that. Um, And he he did a similar one, although I think this was fairly well signposted at the time. Another one of famous one of his was when Wayne Rooney scored his first ever Everton goal against Arsenal and he literally did Wayne Rooney remember the name. And it may be obvious, but that looks great now when you look back, and you've got a, a seventeen or eighteen year old Wayne Rooney crashing one in and Tilsley's telling us to remember who this kid will be. So yeah, what Tilsley don't often gets So uh, also
2: did Danny Kadamatari remember the name.
1: <laughs> yeah well he often gets uh he often gets a bit of stick clive i really like Clive, and i don't know whether you've seen his lockdown commentaries he's been doing on twitter the last couple of weeks where he's he's commentated his wife making a lasagna and there was another one as well That's and they're amazing. genius they're absolutely genius he's a great guy and i, I just there's something about his voice it's he, it's not like there's he doesn't try to be overly clever He's just very, very familiar and comforting, I would say, to hear Clive Tilsley to me. I do miss hearing him on he Champions Clive League Tilsley.
3: broadcasts on ITV. That was always, I still associate him with that. That was yeah. always a, uh, sounded great, yeah. yeah like Peter Drury is very underrated as a commentator. And when he goes oh, yeah, riffing, it's fantastic. Was that Peter him that Drury? Went... With the, uh, a goal for All Africa? Was that him? <laughs> yeah. that sounds like because I him. reference that, that all the time that's good
1: <laughs> that's that. he is another he is a, a lovely lovely guy Peter Jury and i I agree there's there's something great about his sort of overstated commentaries even when he's he, he like he sometimes he he commentates quite a lot on the uh, on the EFL and you know the the league two playoff and he will commentate on it like it's the world Cup final which is fantastic
3: yeah. Yeah. instant control. Oh, brilliant goal!
2: A brilliant goal! Remember the name, Wayne Rooney! Let's finish off with my nomination this week, which is transfer window by a club. Uh, And I, again, have gone negative and the worst transfer window ever. You are a very
1: negative man. (laughs) I've
2: gone with QPR in the summer of 2012. Um, This came actually as a result the back of JJ's nomination because of course QPR were the team that Manchester City uh, beat in that league winning game and Mark Hughes said after that game, we will never be in this position again as long as I'm at this club. So that summer QPR with loads of money bought 11 players which already, alarm bells, uh, too many to read out but among the players they bought Park Ji Sung. Jose Basingua, Andy Johnson, loads of ageing players who'd had great careers. Turns out they couldn't get motivated to play for QPR. And even the good signings got dragged down into this mediocre slop. like Junior Hoyler, who was really promising for Blackburn, did nothing for us. Esteban Granero arrived from Real Madrid, it looked good for them, and uh, you know, just immediately became deeply, deeply average. But the worst of this was... QPR bought Rob Green in July to be our first choice goalkeeper, apparently on about 55 grand a week, which is a ridiculous figure if you've ever been to Loftus Road. And then at the end of August, they bought in Julio Cesar from Inter on about 70
1: grand. Oh, yeah. Have
2: you ever known oh, a club God, to spend nice. huge on a new first choice goalkeeper and then replace them with an even more expensive goalkeeper after two games? It's insane. And then we went 16 games without a win. Mark Hughes got sacked. It's an astonishing waste of money. Nothing became of it. We somehow got worse despite spending all that money. Uh, I think what we think as good transfer windows when they're happening. So think about Everton in the summer of 2018 when they were buying all those promising youngsters. They almost always turn out to be disastrous because you can't buy loads and loads of players and expect it to go well. What do you reckon Mina? Who have you got for this?
0: Actually, I was going to say, because I, I was a little bit caught up about doing a bad one, which was going to be Fulham as well in the, the summer two seasons ago.
2: Yeah, similar story.
0: Exactly. Just buying and, and, you know, Milan. And and to be honest, Barcelona for the last five seasons, like, I just feel like, you know, oh, well, should we get Neymar? Should we not get Neymar back? You know, Griezmann and he has like all this money, you know. Um, none of them were really working out like how they've tried to spend the money since Neymar. But... I did decide to go for uh, Real Madrid in the summer of 2016. Um, they just wanted to League as a good window. Largely because it was this. it was a summer in which they only spent money on one player and that was Alvaro Morata. They had done a buyback clause to get him back from Juventus, bought Marco Asensio back from loan, didn't spend any money because they didn't need to because they had done so well in Balancing the team and and bringing in like young good youngsters, Lucas Vazquez, you know, like Casemiro, whatever, or, you know, throughout the last few seasons, that they only needed to bring just a little bit more balance, a little bit more cover for Ronaldo, whatever it is, and they just got him. Asensio ended up scoring the the fourth goal in the Champions League, um, final that summer against Juventus in 2017. Morata was the to- second top goal scorer after Ronaldo got what. 15 goals and 14 strands. and that was it and they just they'd won the double despite the fact that they didn't spend money because they had planned it so well. and I love when teams just go out a little bit like Liverpool, just get Alisson get what you need and then every year pump that into your team and you don't just go around buying 15 players or ones that just have a big reputation, but just rather buy the right players to give yourself the right balance. And I think that's what made the difference.
2: Real Madrid being thrifty, very very mm. strange behavior have you gone have you gone good or bad for this Matt
1: sort of both um, i 've gone Arsenal 's trolley dash, which I think was summer of two thousand and eleven. I used to cover Arsenal very closely they were they were kind of my club that I was responsible for at the time, and it was funny because we'd had millions of transfer windows leading up to this where Wenger was so reticent to spend any money and would agonize over signings for ages and wouldn't buy it. Arsenal fans got so frustrated with him and you know targets would come and go because he couldn't quite make his mind up then we get to summer 2011 and Arsenal lose 8-2 to Manchester United um towards the end of August and then all of a sudden Wenger just like loses it completely and goes and buys um, Andre Santos, Park Chu Young from Monaco, um, <laughs> Mikel Arteta, Per Mertesacker and Yossi Benayoun on loan from from Chelsea. And we, we everybody, all the papers called it this trolley dash and people made funny pictures of him in supermarket sweep and everything like that. And it looked crazy at the time. And it actually worked out pretty well. I mean, Park Chu Young and Andre Santos will go down as two of Wenger, if not Arsenal's worst ever signings. Absolutely abysmal. But the other three, I mean, they ended up finishing third that season, which, having lost 8-2 to Man United, did not look on at all. And Murtisaka and Arteta go on to captain Arsenal, become sort of club legends, now both work. Obviously, Arteta's manager, Murtisaka, I think, is managing the academy or something. And um, it actually worked out pretty well, this, this kind of scattergun approach. And... Whereas Scattergun approaches can go horribly wrong, I actually think this one worked out for Arsenal, albeit with, with two absolute duds. But, um, but it, it did. But I, I just like the fact it was such a departure from what Wenger did beforehand and did afterwards, really. He obviously just panicked like all the Arsenal fans did after just watching the team lose 8 2 and was like, just go out and get me anyone. Just go out and get me players. Yeah.
2: And immediately sold Armand travel right to uh, to QPR. JJ, what have you got <laughs> this
3: one? Uh, this one's kind of. I thought this one was quite difficult because often, like the most exciting thing was a single transfer that happened. Like how I was talking to you on email about how it's good when Real Madrid signed those amazing players one after another, like Zidane, Ronaldo, etc. But uh, I was looking through all uh, that transfer market website to see when a decent window was, and noticed that Chelsea in o three o uh, sorry in o four o five which was the first year that Mourinho joined? Uh, had an amazing window. They signed Drogba, Carvalho, Ferreira, Robin, Tiago, Petrček, Alex, and Kesman. And only Kesman really didn't star out of that. And that's also the season that you know that's when they won they won the league, wasn't it? Four or five was that the yep. first year Mourinho won it? Yeah. But um, interesting that so they spent all that money. I mean, Drogba was thirty four point six million. He came from Marseille, and I remember he was amazing. In the UEFA Cup, I think it was still the UEFA Cup then, the year before, uh, Carvalho and Ferreira had achieved big things with Rodrigo at Porto. But this is a, you know, in, like, in QPR it came up and they spent all that money on nonsense. Because a lot of the the difficulty in uh, turning a team from being, well, from, from taking up a few levels, like look at how Everton has spent money and haven't gone anywhere, I've seen a QPR. Chelsea had sort of been planning this for a while and they'd bought really well. So, whoever they'd been scouting was decent. Like, you no know, 102 even, they set the, the, the standard for this. They bought Lampard for 14 million, uh, Bolo Zendin, Ms. Levittin, uh, Petit, and Gallus. All solid signings that replaced Dennis Wise, Gus Poya, and Frank Leboeuf. Like big signings going out, these boys coming in. And then to uh, the year after that, didn't really sign anyone. The year after that, they got Crespo, Duff, Veron, McAlaley, Mutu, Bridge, Cole, Johnson, Smarton. Lots of signings in a really short space of time and for them to have moulded into a team that's capable of winning things is impressive. And then on the note of like signing too many players, Wenger has said that you can't sign more than three at once because it destabilises the team. You lose the balance that you had. So it's only often three. And then that made me think about those Real Madrid signings of Ronaldo and Kaká and stuff. They're only one at a time. And Man United, all the best signings they ever made tended to be just one at a time, like a a Rio Ferdinand or something like that and the like, one year they signed Veron, Nistelroy, and Forlan that was their big three signings Lauren Blanc came in as a as a free transfer but he was 35, they can't really have thought he was going to do an awful lot when he came in it's interesting that that seems to be the case that if you sign too many, more than three you upset the balance of your squad unless you're Chelsea, in which case it has worked two years in a
2: row it's quite a lot easier when you've got loads of money, hasn't it? unless you're <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you
3: keep your yeah, you've got to spend it wisely I think Manchester City did it quite well also
2: I did. Agreed. <laughs> <laughs> That's all for this week. You can contact me before next week's episode on Twitter. If you like it, at Tom with an H Gibbs. We will, of course, welcome your suggestions for categories you'd like for us to discuss. You can nominate your own categories and nominate your picks for best stroke worst in those. Send us an email, if you like, afcpodcast at afcpodcast.telegraph.co.uk is the address. We'll read out the best of what you send us. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Look for Telegraph, Audio Football Club, wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to Joel Grove on the buttons and thanks to you for your company. I hope you're doing well and I'll talk to you again soon.